right, all right, and welcome. Welcome back to Unapologetically Black Unicorns. It's so exciting to be here. And I'm here live in New York, and it's not Saturday night. <laughs> uh, we're actually here live in New York at the 2023 Stopping the Stigma Summit to address mental health for children, youth, and families. So this is live. We have a live audience. Are you guys out there? All right, all right. So usually I'm at home or in my home studio in my pajamas by myself on Zoom talking to people uh, for the podcast. But here we are with the live audience with our makeup on, our clothes on, everything. And <laughs> I'm so excited to actually have my um, day job is with Inseparable. My other thing that I do just for fun is the podcast, and now they're intersecting here. It's so cool. So I get to have uh, with me guests um, Pooja Mehta and Angela Kimball, and I'm actually going to ask them to introduce themselves. Hi, everyone. My name is Pooja Mehta. I am the Senior Associate of Activist Engagement at Inseparable, and I'm a motivator because I know how freeing sharing your story can be and how it can be a powerful tool to change perceptions, policies, and personal outcomes. And I'm Angela Kimball, Senior Vice President of Advocacy and Public Policy at Inseparable, and I guess I would say I'm more of an agitator because I'm not content with the status quo, and we're here to fight stigma every single day and change policy. So you know who I am in my work role. I am uh, Karis again, and at Inseparable, I'm Vice President of Partnerships. And I would say that I'm an innovator. On my private business card, it says that I'm an innovationalist because I like thinking outside of the box, especially to address our mental health um, challenges and thinking creatively about them. And so what we're gonna do is have a conversation about the intersection of mental health stigma and policy and how people can become motivators innovators and or agitators. And we just talked a little bit about how that is for us. So the first thing I'd wanna do is maybe Angela, you can start off by telling us a bit about Inseparable. Like who, who are we, what do we do? Like the whole nine yards. Sure. So Inseparable is a national nonpartisan nonprofit advocating to advance policy that reflects the belief that the health of our minds and bodies is inseparable. End of story. And we focus on a number of different areas, but primarily we're focused on closing the treatment gap, making sure that everybody gets access to the care that they need and deserve, improving crisis response, and really importantly, making sure that children and youth get help early, particularly through school and youth mental health services. Fantastic. And Pooja, you've been a mental health advocate for many years. So can you talk a bit about your experience in advocacy and why young voices are so important to be part of the conversation, especially to reduce stigma? Absolutely. Um, so to answer that question, I want to talk about penguins. Bear with me. So emperor penguins, mama penguin lays the egg, daddy penguin takes over, mama penguin along with all the other mama penguins, go to the edge of the glacier to go into the ocean and start hunting for fish. But what they do is they all stand at the, at the ledge and they're all pushing and shoving and nobody, like everyone's scared to jump in because there are seals in the water and nobody wants to be the first penguin in and get eaten. And at some point, a penguin makes the jump and then they all go in the water, thousands and thousands and thousands of penguins because then they know that the seal can't get them. If there's so many of them, a seal won't be able to get any of them. 
That is the power of telling your story. If you can be the first penguin, that shows people that this is safe. This is something you can do. And people will continue and continue and continue to add their voices to the conversation to the point that stigma can't affect you because if it does, it affects everyone. And that's the power of young people telling their story, providing that community of this is something that is safe to do. You can talk about your challenges. You can talk about your struggles. And not only will it not hurt you, you will also find a community of people who are doing the same thing, who are trying to navigate the water and find the fish, and you're all doing it together. And it's really an incredible feeling. Snap, snap, <laughs> clap, thumbs up, the whole nine yards. So we've sort of contextualized who we are and what we do in the youth mental health space. So can we talk more specifically now about mental health stigma? And Pooja, I'm going to start with you. Can you provide some concrete examples of when practices, especially by a trusted leader or policies, have impacted stigma from like your personal experience? Yeah. Um, so in 2015, in college, I participated in a photo project called What I Be. And it's basically using words to challenge your identity. And the words that I chose were, you are a danger to yourself and others because those are words that I had heard from a very, very young age to describe people with mental illnesses. Words I had heard on the news, words I had heard from teachers and religious leaders, words that I had heard from friends and family. And when I started having symptoms at age 13, those were the words that I carried that kept me silent for two years, that kept me from asking for help for two full years. And for three years after that, had me self-stigmatizing to the point that I didn't engage with care. I went without proper treatment for five years because of those words. And, you know, I was very clearly not okay. I was having panic attacks in school. I was leaving early. And I fully believed that those words meant that, you know, either nobody noticed or nobody cared because what I was going through was not worth caring about because I was a danger to myself and others. I'm still unpacking that. <laughs> you know, if you can't hear that in my voice, I'm still working through that. And, you know, it's just one, it is just a very personal example, but one that is being reiterated hundreds of times over unless we collectively address the policies that are driving those conversations in the first place. It's such a, you know, powerful example also of self-stigma, which we heard about earlier this morning. And so, Angela, you know, I know that many of us come to this work for personal reasons. And so... Um, how has mental health stigma shown up for you in your life as a mom with a son who has um, mental health challenges? Oh, my. <laughs> so, you know, when my, when my son was young and he had so many challenges of, that made him different. He had incredible gifts as well. Uh, but it was easier in those days to believe that something was wrong with him physically than to believe that his mind might be different. And there was so much shame and blame. Um, at that time, it was thought to be just a bad kid and certainly a poor parent. So, so there was so much that hung on to that um, that made it very difficult. And I felt like I was always protecting my son from a world that just did not understand who he was and what gifts he could bring to the world. 
but beyond that, because this is really about policy and stigma, I also learned that the very policies that surrounded me uh, really embodied stigma at a much deeper, more pernicious level. And an example of that was the fact that I had what I considered to be good, you know, health insurance coverage, Blue Cross coverage. And when my son was young, I could take him to the pediatrician anytime, no copay, or maybe it was $5. For psychiatric care, thousands of dollars of a copayment before anything was covered. There was a limited number of visits that were covered every year. And so I not only had to pay an incredible amount of money that put a financial strain on the family to take care of my son, what is, what is so much more damaging is feeling that that lack of coverage actually meant that my son's condition wasn't worthy, that I wasn't worthy, that our family wasn't worthy of the kind of treatment and support that he needed to live his best life. And so that's why I'm really grateful that we're here talking about reducing stigma by transforming mental health policy because that, that is the deep structural stigma that keeps us all behind. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for sharing and it's so meaningful. You know, um, as we talk about, you know, our, our work and our, our reasons for being at Inseparable and um, thinking about this particular uh, event as well, I, you know, it resonates with my personal experience as well, especially as a black indigenous person and having my first suicide attempt at six years old. I used to say it was eight years old because I thought you started first grade when you're eight, but you start when you're six. And I just couldn't imagine being that young and having this experience. But one of the things that, um, you know, my... my family was very concerned about was telling anybody. Um, and that, you know, they impressed upon me, especially as a, you know, a, a person of color, that people are going to discriminate against you. They're going to have biases about you. So don't take this out of the house. That that will double, triple, quadruple the concerns people have about you. And also, um, as an army brat or global nomad, my father was in the military, it might also impede where we were able to go so that I could get whatever services as I needed because there may have been regulations about what, where a family can go or what base they can serve on, etc. So those are other structural issues. So let's get into this chat about structural stigma. And again, Angela, I think I'm going to start with you. Can you give us some concrete examples of how policy impacts stigma and vice versa and the differential treatment of people living with mental illnesses or mental health conditions um, and their families? Oh, I could go on for days. Yes. On that. <laughs> I'll just touch on, on a few. So, so one of the things that I am actually sort of buoyed by is a recent piece of legislation that Inseparable worked to help pass uh, in the state of Colorado. And that was a bill to remove the requirement of having a formal mental health diagnosis in order to access Medicaid mental health services. And, and to me, that's incredibly important because that reduces stigma. And if you think about the reverse of that, and that is we have policies that enforce stigma that require people to have this diagnosis before they're even allowed to access care. We don't require that for other kinds of health care. So this is one of the ways that we combat that. 
Um, and then I think at a, a deeper level, um, working in a state to advance patient protections in commercial health insurance coverage. Have interviewed numerous families, and the stories have been horrific. And really what it illustrates is what I consider to be one of the most egregious uh, policies uh, that exist out there that really embody stigma. And that is we allow commercial health insurance companies to have their own black box proprietary criteria for making decisions about whether children get the mental health care that they need. That is absolutely ridiculous. And so as a result, children and their families are denied, denied treatment every single day when they need it so critically. And yet that is considered a policy that our country embraces. And we're here to fight that. <laughs> um, that can... <laughs> And I could go on further. I'll, I'll just touch on one before I hand things over to Pooja. Uh, inpatient care. The idea that we, in the mental health world, have to somehow prove that we're on the edge of death or of killing somebody else in order to get intensive treatment is absolutely absurd. That doesn't happen. It shouldn't happen. The way we pay, underpay, um, <coughs> providers, facilities for care really has resulted in the exact kind of environment that we're at today. A lack of providers, a lack of availability of care. It all comes down to the things that we do in policy that embody the values of our society. What we pay for, what we pass in law reflects that. And I say what we see today in policy reflects an antiquated view of mental health conditions that is so far behind where the people are at today. And I just want to build on that. And, you know, I especially want to shout out the last panel for talking about the need for change in, in big policy, like legislative policy, but also policies in hospitals, in caregiving systems, in all of those things. You know, Angela talked about needing to be on the verge of hurting yourself, hurting, being a danger to yourself and others um, in order to seek care. You know, a, a couple summers ago, I, w I sought help for suicidal ideation. I drove my car to a psychiatric hospital. I paid with my credit card. I put out, put out my own insurance card. I, you know, walked into the clinic because I knew what I was dealing with and I knew that I needed help. And I filled out the intake form with a crayon because it was too dangerous to give me a pen. I just, I just drove there, by the way, but it was too dangerous to give me a pen. Um, an intake coordinator had me answer a whole bunch of questions, went to talk to the doctor, came back with a treatment plan. The treatment plan was not what I had in mind. And so I asked, you know, did, did you come up with this? And she goes, no, you know, the consulting physician did. And I asked, can I speak to the physician? And she said, no. And I asked, I said, and I quote, what? <laughs> um, and she said, no. And I said, well, you know, I would like to have a conversation and kind of understand where, like, why this is my treatment plan before I sign on to it. And basically the conclusion was, you know, you can sign on to this or you can leave. And so I left and I once again got in my vehicle and left. I don't know about you, but I've never had a cavity filled 
without speaking to the physician recommending that I do that. How is this the standard of care in psychiatric you know, facilities? And so, you know, even like even revamping that to make sure that, you know, patients, consumers, whatever you want to call it, that we are included in part of the treatment, diagnostic, whatever, the way that you would for any other patient. Like how, like, make it make sense. I don't mm. yeah. <laughs> it doesn't It doesn't make sense. Make and it we, make we, sense. we cannot like, make that make sense. We are not going to try to make that make sense because it doesn't make sense. Angela, what do you think? Oh my gosh! Uh, well, I'm I'm just struck because I, I'm thinking back to people I know. I a, a good friend whose son was in an inpatient unit, and you know she was with him every single day. And family was such an important part of his recovery. And then he turned 17, and the day he turned 17, they kicked the family out, shut the doors, and said no. You know. We can't let family in anymore. It doesn't happen if you're a child with diabetes and turn 17 and your family's not kicked out of the hospital room. So whether it's policy at a low level or whether it's policy at a high level embodied in state or federal uh, law, we see enormous discrimination and marginalization, the othering of people with mental health conditions. And and that, that is what's so disturbing because it really perpetuates stigma in a way that is so deeply rooted. And it's bad enough when you're a child, you turn to be an adult and all of a sudden it just gets magnified because now it's a question on licensure exams. Now it's a question as you fill out government forms for employment. It is, it is everywhere. And you don't think about it, voting. Oh, involuntary hospitalization, and in many states, no, you can no longer vote. Uh, there are so many discriminatory policies out there that are so incredibly dangerous to how we think and feel as a nation and the inclusiveness of people who live with mental health conditions. And it's really ironic because there are like 60 million people with mental health conditions, and yet, Yet we have these policies that reflect, reflect a belief system that is so old-fashioned and not grounded in science or reality. Yeah, yeah. And those, those policies, actually, as you're talking, you know, it reminds me how it can impact the people who serve us. So whether it be, um, you know, in, in mental health treatment where you were giving this example or in, in my case going to the ER because um, I had lost my voice is the best way I know how to put it. I mean, I had a voice, but it was not my voice. It was, um, it was this sexy Lauren Bacall situation going on, which was kind of <laughs> nice, but it was very painful. Um, and when I went to the ER, I was told, my father told me go to the ER because I was also numb all over. And he thought maybe I was having a stroke. And I said, well, I think that only happens on one side of your body. But at the end of the day, I went to the ER. And I actually didn't feel, fill out the form that said I had a diagnosis of a mental health condition as part of my um, history because I didn't want to be treated differently. But they could actually see it in my EHR because there was medications for um, my I have a diagnosis of schizophrenia. So they could see what medications I was taking. And immediately the response was, oh, it's all in your head. 
this is your voice. And I'm like, no, this is not my voice. And I, ha and I accidentally used the word neuropathy, bad Karis, right? Which, why can't I use that word? But suddenly it's like, who's this black woman using this big old word? And they asked me, where did I get that word from? Did I look it up? So all of this was happening and I just decided that I needed to be seen because I didn't know what was going on. So I sat in front of the intake person and I just stared her down for hours. I just would not move. I didn't care if I had to go to the bathroom, get water, nothing. Until finally, I think they got annoyed with me and brought me back to draw blood. And they said, well, we'll draw your blood in a way to say, we're just gonna appease you and appear we're doing something. And when they drew my blood, they found out all of my numbers were all out of whack. Um, my potassium was so low, that's what was causing the numbness. Um, and a whole bunch of other numbers were off. And eventually, they brought an ENT guy in to look down my throat. And they found I had a big mass in my throat that was um, paralyzing my vocal nerve. And that um, big lump happened to be thyroid cancer. And they also found out that I had parathyroid cancer. So all of this is predicated on the fact that they saw I had a diagnosis. They didn't see I had a diagnosis of schizophrenia. They went there because of the medication that was prescribed. Then they started treating me differently. That's what stigma can look like. That's what policies that perpetuate stigma. That's this vicious cycle that we're really trying to work ourselves out of. And um, there is hope. So we're telling these stories and they seem very downer-ish, right? But let's talk a little bit about the hope. And inseparable is all about hope and about creating what we want now, but also what we want for our future. And we don't do it alone. As I said, I'm the vice president of partnerships, so clearly we're doing it with other people. So, and I'm sure as an audience, you want to know, well, what is it that you can do to be agitators, motivators, or innovators? So what can we do? So Angela, I'm going to turn it to you. What can we do? <laughs> there is so much that can be done. And, and I'll, I'll just tell a couple stories. So, so one is about patient experience of care. So we've talked uh, just now about some of the experiences people have had in inpatient settings. And the irony here is, you know, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services routinely sends out surveys to people after inpatient hospitalization. There are two groups of people who don't get those surveys. Anybody with a primary diagnosis of a mental health condition or anybody with a primary diagnosis of a substance use disorder. Stigma, discrimination, <laughs> right then and there. And you don't know it, right? Because if you're excluded, unless you see that somebody else has received that. So we had a conversation with CMS. We're like, well, you know, uh, because maybe people with mental health conditions can't be relied upon to give an accurate survey of their experience of care. We turned to them and said, but you are providing this survey to all sorts of people who have cognitive impairments and all sorts of issues that could potentially impact how they fill out a survey of care. They did a little bit more digging, and what they discovered was really profound. That experience of care survey had never been validated or tested with populations who had a primary diagnosis of mental health or substance use condition. It simply hadn't been tested on people, and therefore it couldn't be used. And so, finally, 
CMS proposed some regulations to change their policy for decades of not bothering to ask the opinion of anybody who lives with a mental health condition and put out these proposed comments. You know, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of advocates who wrote in about their experiences in inpatient settings and how critically important it is to have their voice heard. And now today, that's on a path of being unwound and so that everybody will receive that experience of care survey. So that's, that's a profound example, but you have to know the policy. <laughs> And what's really beautiful about it is that was individual voices just sharing their experiences, and that had the effect. And there's another opportunity that, that was just upon us, and that is federal parity. So the federal parity law was passed in 2008. Unfortunately, it was founded on a basis of anti-discrimination. So, Fundamentally, parity is about a comparison between mental health and substance use condition coverages and other health care coverage. You have to prove that discrimination in order to actually uh, make any traction. It's not really about patient protections. Uh, so we've had conversations uh, with the administration, and they recently proposed regulations that get more at the intent, the heart of what parity was intended to do, which is to increase access to mental health and substance use care. Uh, already, insurance companies are, are fighting against this, but so are the people. There are over 7,000 comments that have been submitted to the federal government from individuals who are advocating for stronger rules that reflect the belief that people deserve better access to mental health care. So people's voices count. They really do. And we, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, Pooja, I want to talk to you a little bit about um, how we also do our work in youth mental health um, through Hopeful Futures. Can you, so can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, voices and storytelling and input you know, drives policy forward, but it's also important in informing what those policies are and making sure that they are serving the needs of the people that they are meant to serve. Um, at Inseparable, we power the Hopeful Futures Campaign, which is a group of several different organizations coming together to work on the issues that are, you know, that are driving the, mental, the youth mental health crisis and trying to fi find solutions to provide young people with the care that they need in places that they already are. And as part of that work, we have young people in the campaign. We have young people who are Hopeful Future campaign partners who are providing that perspective on the work that we're doing and we're making sure that their voices are getting included in our campaign strategies and moving policies forward. We have a very beautiful op-ed written by a high schooler in Colorado which contributed significantly to moving that bill through the finish line. We have youth coming in and informing our reports that go out to legislators on what are the policies that you should be prioritizing and how should you be going about doing that. You know, um, there's, a, there's a saying that I, I love from one of my mentors, nothing about us without us. And that applies no matter who you are, how young you are, and you know, what experiences you have at the table. If you're trying to do something to inform a group of people, 
that group of people needs to have a, a high stakes voice in that conversation. And that is what we seek to do in the work that we do. So um, actually, there's the QR code if you want to learn more about the Hopeful Futures campaign. We have uh, some of our campaign partners here. Hello. Hi. Nice seeing you guys. <laughs> but uh, we have a school mental health report card there. Um, so you can see state by state what's happening in school mental health. So feel free to get the QR code. Um, and again, for people who are listening to the podcast, clearly you can't see a QR code. So the site is hopefulfutures.us. So also what we talk about a lot is the power of storytelling. So Pooja, can you say a little bit more about policy, policy change, and the power of storytelling? Absolutely. You know, Angela mentioned the the CMS um, call for for comments and how over almost 7,000 comments were contributed by people, by, by advocates. Each of those comments is a story. Each of those comments is a person who has gone through a failure in the system and is speaking up against it. Um, you know, and think about, I mean, I'm, when I was preparing the comments for this, I was thinking about the bigger movements in, in my lifetime, Me Too, Black Lives Matter, the, the fight for LGBTQ rights. They're all driven by storytelling. You know, it's easy to see data or and like, you know, this percentage, this number of people, this many dollars. But when you put that story to a person who is sitting in front of you, when you're able to see those numbers reflected in a narrative that someone is telling you, there's a power to that that nothing else can even compare to. I know that there is a lot of conversation around social media and youth mental health. I'm not going to touch that. But... I do want to highlight that the role that social media has in amplifying these stories. You know, historically, the way that you were able to get the ear of important people is to pay them a lot of money so that you can sit in a room with them and then tell them what you, what they, what you want them to hear. Social media is reducing those barriers substantially. There are so many people who are going to social media platforms and sharing their stories. That's how I got my start. I posted my story on Instagram. Here we are, you know, like it is it is a way to reach a lot of people and people who might have been living in a world where they thought they were the only one going through this. And again, the first penguin, right? If someone sees that story on a platform that they're going to however many times a day, they know that there's someone else who gets it and they know that they have an ally and they know that they might be able to come together along with almost 7000 other people and push for changes in systems that are not serving them the way that they need to. And that's a huge thing. Yeah, thank you, thank you. And actually that's the reason for the podcast really is, you know, when I was diagnosed with, a, with a schizophrenia, I was actually looking for people who look like me, in particular people of color, who were openly talking about um, their experiences with schizophrenia, especially their recovery journey. And many of us who are in the recovery movement or peer consumer movement, whatever it's called these days, it keeps changing its name. You know, we hold all of these conferences for public mental health. And I would look, um, because I was in public mental health, and I would look in the audience and see so many people who look like me. But if I looked up on stage for people with lived experience who were telling their personal stories, who had written books, who were leading organizations or doing training, I could not find a person of color. I could not find a black person. I could not find an indigenous person. I could not find an Asian person. There was no literally there there. 
And recently, in the past couple of years, I was able to provide testimony for Representative John Lewis on some work he was doing around access to technology and telehealth for communities of color and rural communities in particular. And somebody African-American happened to uh, see me give that testimony. I knew this person. I had never seen her, so I actually didn't know she was black. Um, And she texted me and she said, oh my God, I saw you give your testimony and um, I had no idea that you had lived experience, that you're black. I don't know, we don't have a secret code, people, to say that, (laughs) you know, that we're black, we just don't. And uh, she said, I've never actually talked to anybody with lived experience um, and I too have lived experience. So I started introducing her to a whole bunch of people. Then I found out from the people I was introducing her to, they didn't know each other. How is that even possible? So I said, well, I've got to find a way to collect these stories and put them out there. And somebody said, have you ever heard of a podcast? And I'm like, (laughs) what? (laughs) So that's actually the purpose, really, the purpose of the podcast is to collect um, these stories, to be able to use these stories, to be able to introduce people to other people. When folks are looking for people to testify, and I might get called, do you know anybody who's African-American, Native, Latino? And I can just go to my podcast and actually look up a bunch of people and be able to provide them those names. And I think um, it's so valuable to talk about ensuring that those stories are also told by people that we don't generally see or hear from because somebody needs to see that person, hear that person who looks like them to know that um, change can happen and that recovery is possible. So I am going to, oh, I'm going to ask one other question. So here goes the off the cuff question. I hope we can answer it. When we talk about our work at Inseparable, by the way, when we talk about our work at Inseparable, how many bills did we get passed this year? This year? Oh, uh, well, okay. Yes. 16 this year. I think we've done 22 bills in nine states in two years. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we just high-fived each other or fist-bumped each other. Um, and I just want to, I think that helps kind of understand the scale. We are small but mighty. But we're mighty because we work with other people. This is not work that we do alone. We work with people in the grassroots. We uh, work with youth. Uh, We work with um, um, other organizations that really um, help to get the word out. So what we usually do when we get ready to wrap up is I ask each of the guests to do a piece of wisdom dropping. And what you're going to do is you're going to share that one piece of wisdom, that one piece of information that you really want to leave our listeners with. It can be an action. It can be a affirmation. It could be whatever you want. So um, do you want to start with Angela? Do you want to start? Sure. Tap into your inner compass, like your inner moral compass, and, and find your power. We all have it. We don't have to live with the status quo. I am a proud North Carolinian, and the Senate Mental Health Caucus was announced last week. Was it really last week? Wow. And Senator Tellis is a North Carolina senator and also one of the co-chairs of this caucus. And at the opening reception, he shared a story of how he struggled with depression. 13-year-old Pooja didn't know there were people who could understand what she was going through, much less her sitting senator. We have heard a lot of stigma in policies and systems and you know there's a lot of work to do i will be the first to say that but the world is better today than it was when i was 13. 
And I know that because of the work that the people in this room and listening to this podcast and way beyond that, that tomorrow is going to be better than today. I have unwavering hope that tomorrow is going to be better than today. And I hope all of you have it as well. So I don't drop wisdom because these are the wisdom droppers, the guests on the podcast. So I um, just want to thank Angela and Pooja for being on the podcast. And one of the things my producer relentlessly tells me to do, so this is something I have to do, thank you, Garrett, is to remind people to like, subscribe, comment. But most importantly, what I say sorry, Garrett, this has nothing to do with you, is to actually share. There are going to be people who need to hear these messages, the messages of hope, the messages of action, and we want people to be able to hear these messages and the wonderful information that our guests shared with us today. So thank you very much for being um, our guest on Unapologetically Black Unicorns. Go ahead, clap. All right, so we will see you next week on Unapologetically Black Unicorns. Thank you.